in the glove box of my car, there is a key. Actually, it's a, it's a special type of adapter. And it probably gets used at most twice a year. It has one function and one function only and is useless for anything else. I think my mum said that about me once, but I'm talking about something in my glove box. On each of the car's wheels are five wheel nuts which hold the wheel in place and stop it falling off, which I find to be quite useful. And on each wheel, one of those five nuts has a special shape cut into the head of it. And if you want to remove that nut off the wheel, you have to use the special adapter. It's an anti-theft device, hopefully to stop people stealing your wheels. Of course, there was a time whenever anyone heard the name of Liverpool mentioned, some bright spark would pipe up, mind your hubcaps! We seem to be getting through that in recent years, thankfully. Well, no one's ever stolen the wheels off my car yet. Um, they once took Vicks and left his car on bricks. That was a long time ago, though. Generally speaking, the only time this little adapter ever gets used is when the car is in the garage being serviced and they have to take the wheels off. At least I hope that's what they do while they're servicing it anyway. But this little adapter, this little lump of metal in a little plastic bag buried at the bottom of the glove box is not good for anything else, useless for anything else. Now, in Ezekiel, God paints a picture about the nation of Israel. And it's intended to convey a very simple but important message. There is one thing, really, that God is looking for in Israel. And if he can't find that one thing, it means that really Israel is good for nothing. If that one thing that God requires of them cannot be found, they are good for nothing. And what makes this picture even more striking is that Jesus picks up this very same imagery and employs it to speak to his disciples in the New Testament. And the picture is of a vine. And perhaps you never realise that those well-known verses of Jesus in John chapter 15 are not unique and he's actually recycling an Old Testament picture. And his hearers would almost certainly have been familiar with it. Well, let's begin, first of all, by just thinking about the symbol of the vine as we find it in the Old Testament, because it's used not infrequently and in, well, two particular ways. First of all, the vine is used in the Old Testament to symbolize Israel in obedience to God, spiritually in a good place, and enjoying God and his blessings. Let me give you two examples. 1 Kings chapter 4 and verse 25. 
Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. The vine is being used there to, to symbolize and signify Israel at peace and blessed of God. And then Micah chapter 4 verse 4. Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. It's a picture of Israel as God really wants them to be. Blessed, at peace, spiritually healthy and in a good place. So that's the first way that the vine is employed in the Old Testament. But secondly, and more frequently, the nation of Israel itself, as a nation, is depicted as a vine. And it's always in one of two states. It's either a healthy vine, bearing good fruit, or it's in decline, or even worse, and devoid of good fruit there is no good fruit to be found in it save one or two here and there who are at various times referred to as the remnant God always does have his people somewhere in Israel Psalm 80 verse 8 you have brought a vine out of Egypt talking about the nation of Israel you have cast the nations cast out the nations and planted it. So Israel is pictured as a vine that God has planted. And then we've got um, a really helpful verse that helps us to really see how this imagery is used. And this is in Isaiah and chapter 5 and the opening seven verses. So you might want to turn to it in your Bible, Isaiah chapter 5. And let me read those verses for you. Isaiah 5 the opening seven verses and hear how the nation of Israel is pictured as a vine. Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes. But it brought forth wild grapes or bad grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge please between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected it to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please, let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it shall be burned and break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. 
And so we see the imagery of a vine being employed in the Old Testament scriptures in a number of different ways. And here in Ezekiel chapter 15, as we see Jesus using in John chapter 15, the issue here is what kind of vine is it? Is it bearing good fruit or isn't it? And that's the issue that's brought before us in that chapter. And so in Ezekiel chapter 15, we have a vine amongst the trees. How is the wood of the vine better than any other wood, the vine branch which is among the trees of the forest? So here's a forest with trees of every sort. Now I confess I'm not very horticultural. But I do remember once walking through a wood with someone who was very knowledgeable and I don't think we came across a single tree and that person could not identify it. They knew, you see, what they were looking for. They knew what to expect for each type of tree. How tall or short or something in between. What shape of outline, what kind of silhouette do its branches produce? Is it narrow or thin? Or does it spread out broad like an oak tree? That one I do know. What colour is its bark? What colour and shape are its leaves? And, depending on the time of year, does it have any blossom or fruit on it? And if so, what is it like? And these are all consistently reliable features that you can use to identify each tree, if you know what you're looking for, and if you know what each tree should have. Because each tree can only do its own thing. Oak trees don't grow like birch trees. Apples do not grow on sycamores. And if you want some conkers at the end of the summer, you're going to be very disappointed unless you can find a horse chestnut. Because each tree does its thing. So here's this wood with trees of every sort and amongst all of the trees there is also a vine. And someone walks into that wood looking for timber. They want wood that can be cut and sawn and milled and turned and carved and sanded and be put to all kinds of use. Someone wants roof beams for a large building. That oak tree will be perfect. Someone wants to make really fine, expensive furniture. The mahogany and the walnut will do very nicely. Someone just wants everyday furniture for everyday use. A couple of pine trees will do the job very nicely. Building a log cabin. You can't do better than cedar, so I'm told because it's very resistant to rot. But 
a vine. What can you use a vine for? Well, unless you're Tarzan, not very much. What can you use a vine for? One answer. Firewood. Firewood. Why? Because it is only fit for burning. It's only fit for burning. Verses 6 to 8. Now you must remember that Ezekiel's message is one of judgment from God against Israel. Why is that? Well, because they have long ceased to be the nation that he established them to be. And apart from a few faithful exceptions, they are rebellious, they're disobedient, they're idolatrous, and they're stubbornly unrepentant. How does chapter 15 end? Because they have persisted in unfaithfulness is the conclusion of the chapter they have cast off God they have refused to heed both his warnings and his calls to repent and return because when God's judgment comes it's always accompanied with calls to re to repent and return because God is gracious and he stands ready to forgive. But they have not and they will not. And that's the issue. And so for the very most part, they have become a vine that is no longer bearing any good fruit. So what to do with them? The wood from a vine is soft it's gnarled and twisted and you just can't do anything with it according to the the chapter there you can't even make a peg to hand a, hang a coat on it's useless you can't make anything you can't build anything you see a vine is only good for one thing growing grapes and when the vine does it well, it does it really well. And it's glorious. Producing fruit is what the vine is all about. But if it's not producing fruit, it has no purpose. Israel, as a nation, had long ago stopped producing the kind of spiritual fruit that God had established them for in the first place. They were to be his people and he was to be their God in a real, literal, practical sense. They were to walk with him, love him, trust him, obey him, worship him, serve him, follow him, glorify him. And in return, he wants to love them, protect them, provide for them, keep them in peace and be the source of all of their joy and comfort. But for Israel as a nation, those days are long gone. <coughs> there are still individuals in the nation. Ezekiel's one of them. Jeremiah back in Jerusalem is one of them. But as a nation, not anymore. And so God 
is throwing them on the fire. It's a picture of his judgment and the reality of that fire was he brings judgment against them by means of other nations, the likes of the Assyrians, the likes of the Babylonians. And you might recall uh, the attacks from Babylon it wasn't just one attack and it was all over it came in phases and it came again and it came again and it was like they're being burned at one end and then they're being burned at another end and now they're being burned in the middle and eventually they will be completely burnt up but it will happen God is done with them after centuries centuries of patience and long-suffering and kindness and grace now here's the thing Jesus picks up exactly the same imagery in the New Testament in John 15 and he's talking to his disciples and he applies these same principles and truths to them and for all Christian people and for the church so let's bear in mind what we've learned in Ezekiel and take it into John chapter 15 you might like to have those verses open in front of you now chapters 13 to 17 of John's gospel are particularly special in this regard most of what is recorded in those chapters 13 to 17 most of it is not found in the other gospels most of it is unique to John and those five chapters record a discourse between Jesus and his disciples. It's mostly Jesus teaching. And it's, it occurs on the evening before he was betrayed, after they've shared what we know today as the Last Supper. And they've had the meal together. And that's when this body of teaching is delivered to them in John's Gospel. And so these words are being addressed to those who are his disciples and who will be his apostles in the fledgling church in just a few weeks' time after his death and resurrection and ascension. What, just, what does Jesus teach us as he picks up what would have been a well-known analogy from the Old Testament scriptures about the vine? Well, what I want to do is just talk through each of these verses. Just a few things to say about each of these verses. We'll take them in order so you'll find it helpful to have your Bible open at John 15. Well, the first thing we see is that Jesus is the vine. Now, a vine has a central stem called the stock. And it grows and grows and grows. And... Uh, a bit like a rambling rose or something, it can be trained and a, a single vine can run for a, an awful long distance. And from that single vine, from that single stock, all of these other branches come off it. And all of the branches are attached to the stock. And then the branches do the fruit bearing. So that's the picture. One vine one central stem off which all the branches come and then the branches do the fruit bearing. That's the picture. So it's a picture of every believer joined to Christ, attached to Christ, 
in union with Christ. Because that's what a Christian is. One who's attached and in union with Christ. This is foundational to being a Christian at all. Are you a Christian believer? Do you know that you are attached to Christ? That you're united with him by his spirit? That you and he are together? That's what a Christian is. A little more on that as we move through the verses. And we see also in verse 1 that God the Father is the vine dresser. All is under the Father's care and oversight. And I'm very thankful for that. That's a, a great sense of reassurance to me. All is under the Father's care. All is according to the Father's will. And note also that Jesus is the true vine. There are false ones out there. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, as you find him in the Bible, is the true one. Are you following the true vine? Are you attached to the true vine? Do you belong to the true vine? Verse 2. Amongst the good branches, there will be false ones. They'll look like branches but they're not able to do what a true branch will always do. And this is a word of encouragement for all of you as we come towards the end later. Because all true branches do what true branches do. But there are certain branches that are not able to do that. Now what do true branches always do? True branches always produce a certain type of fruit. A good fruit. Now, Jesus speaks about the reality of this in a number of different ways throughout the New Testament. So on one occasion, he said, there will be tares growing amongst the wheat. And it might be difficult to know which is which sometimes. But the day will come when God will separate the wheat from the tares. There will be seed planted in the ground and at first it might appear that that seed is doing okay but that seed will never reach the stage of bearing fruit because its growth is not genuine and at some point it will wither away and die he said in the parable of the sower and there will be those who say Lord Lord, and reel off a list of achievements which they claim were all done in his name. And many, many of them would have considered themselves to have been branches and others would have looked at them and considered them to be branches. And Christ's reply, depart from me. I never knew you. You've never been joined to me. There'll be those who have an appearance of being a branch and who even claim to be a branch, but they're not. Being amongst branches does not make you a branch. Being in Christ 
makes you a branch. And the Father knows which is which and who is who. And I'm very thankful for that. Because it means that ultimately I can leave it in his hands and trust his judgment. But the false branches will not go the distance. The Father will remove them. But the genuine branches will continue. And they will bear fruit. And when struggles and trials and difficulties come, those times will often be the Father's pruning. Times of pain and sorrow which cause us to put our roots even deeper into Christ. Cause our faith and our hope to grow. They can actually make us even more fruitful in the years ahead. But not just those things. God will use his word and his spirit to do his pruning. God will use preaching to do his pruning. A sculptor was chiseling away at a huge block of marble. What are you doing? asked a passerby. I'm getting rid of everything that is not a horse, he said. Yeah, some of you might have to think about that one. I'm getting rid of everything that is not a horse. That's what the Father's pruning does in our lives, you see. It gets rid of those things in our lives which are a hindrance to the production of fruit. It gets rid of all of those things that don't look like Christ so that what's left does but it takes time as the Holy Spirit sculpts away chip by chip by chip doing his work within each one of us verse 3 this is quick and easy the word of Christ has been doing its work of preparation in these men the word of Christ has been preparing them, making them ready and fit for his service. Making them ready to bear fruit. That's what the word does. That's why you need it. And that's why you must give it your fullest attention and make time for it. The word of Christ will prepare you for usefulness for him. Verse 4, the branches must abide in Christ because he is the source of their life. The branches must remain fixed to Christ so that his life is flowing into them. But all of that depends upon this vital relationship with Christ. Do you profess to be a Christian? Just how important is Jesus Christ to you? How vital is he to your daily living? How often will you think on him tomorrow? What place does he have in all of your daily routines? What place does he have in your soul right now where you sit? You may be in church, but are you in Christ? You may be in your usual seat, 
But are you in Christ? You may be in the prayer meeting on Wednesday. But are you in Christ? You may be in the middle of your little group of friends. But are you in Christ? That's what matters. That's what counts. Have you turned to him as saviour and lord? Is he truly your master and your king and you are his obedient servant? Do you commune with him regularly through prayer and through his word? Is all your hope and trust only in him for everything in this life and for all of eternity? You must abide in Christ. And verse 5 Only those who are in Christ can bear the fruit that God requires because this fruit cannot be produced outside of Christ. It's impossible. Those who are in Christ will bear this fruit because actually this is the unavoidable consequence of being in Christ. If that's truly your place with him and his life is flowing into you, you will be changed. You can't help it. It must be that. An important thing to note in this passage is that you don't put bearing fruit at the top of your to-do list. It's not something that you strive to do in that sense. You make abiding in Christ your priority. And you use all the means of grace that God has given you in order that you may abide in Christ, if you do that, the fruit will follow. The fruit will come. Jesus frequently uses this analogy in the Gospels, good trees bearing good fruit and bad trees bearing bad fruit. And it's the fruit which is the giveaway as to what kind of tree it is that you bear this good fruit. But here's an important question. What is this fruit? What is it? Well, I've got some very good news for you. Let me tell you what it is not. This fruit is not a big, long list of achievements of things that you have done that you can produce. That's not what this fruit is. That's not to say that there shouldn't be things that we're doing and achieving for Christ, but that's not the essence of this fruit. The essence of this fruit, well, it's this. Here are some verses from the scriptures. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Fruit which demonstrates repentance in your life. Now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. That's the fruit. The fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness and truth. Goodness, righteousness and truth is the fruit being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. 
No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. There's a bit of a common theme coming out here, isn't there? Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Worshipping the Lord from the heart is this fruit. And so on. And of course, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, joy and peace. Long-suffering gentleness, goodness and faith. Meekness and self-control. Primarily, the essence of this fruit is the development of a godly and Christ-like character. That's this fruit. A godly and Christ-like character. Because everything else in the Christian life depends upon that and flows from that. A godly and Christ-like character is the fruit that the Father is looking for. Verse 6. The branches that are producing no fruit will themselves, in, ex in exactly the same, will be in exactly the same position as Old Testament Ezekiel, uh, Old Testament Israel in Ezekiel 15. If there's no fruit being produced, it's good for nothing but to be thrown into the fire and burned. And the branches that produce no fruit are those that are not abiding in Christ and connected to Christ. Verse 7, as we draw to a close, the branch which abides in Christ has two key characteristics in verse 7. The word and prayer. The word and prayer. Quite a few times in another place just up the road, I used to hear Stuart Olliott say, read your Bible and pray every day. There it is in verse 7. The word of God and prayer. This is why our corporate gathering is so important for our spiritual growth. Because when we gather, it's all about the word of God and prayer. If you have an aversion to the emphasis which Christ and the apostles keep placing upon the word and prayer. Maybe you're not the branch you think you are. What kind of branch are you? Am I? What type of fruit is being produced? The Father sees. The Father knows. Would you be fruitful? Be joined to Christ and remain in him. Because when you do that, he will produce the fruit.